He's the most famous spy in the world. He has a license to kill and an ability to thrill. He's a connoisseur of luxury and violence. And of La Belle France herself. Say goodbye to Moneypenny and let's join Bond, James Bond, in Paris. Welcome to this episode of Paris Gumby, the Parisian history podcast for the curious traveler. I'm Michelle, your host and guide to the Paris of the past. You may have noticed all the episodes for PGB are numbered, and behind the scenes, the episodes are three digits. So this episode, the seventh episode, is technically 007. As a lifelong Bond fan, I couldn't ignore this obvious invitation to do an episode about Bond, much like how Bond can't resist an obvious trap. Once I had decided that this was going to be about Bond, I kind of ran into a brick wall. Movie Bond doesn't spend a whole lot of time in Paris, unfortunately. In fact, very, very little time. Uh, Ethan Hunt and Jason Bourne spend way more time in Paris than our dear James. There are just actually a few instances. You'll remember toward the beginning of A View to a Kill that we have Roger Moore as James Bond at the Jules Verne restaurant there on the tower, meeting with one of his contacts and one of the villains, May Day, played by Grace Jones. She was pretty scary in that role. Kills the contact and James chases after her first up and down the Eiffel Tower. And then when she parachutes from the tower, don't do that yourself, he has to find another way and he ends up stealing a car, a taxi, I think, <laughs> and chasing her around kind of that uh, 7th arrondissement area of Paris, including losing the roof of the car and having the car cut in half. It still keeps going, even though it doesn't have a gas tank. Anyway, she does elude him in the end. And after that, they move to uh, the Chateau de Chantilly, which is both the lair of the bad guy, Max Zorn, played by pre-cowbell Christopher Walken, and uh, also where he keeps all of his horses and his evil laboratory. So it's kind of doing triple duty there. But that's about it for major players actually set in France. We do have Thunderball has a few spots, including Spectre headquarters in Paris and uh, sometimes spent at the Chateau d'Anne, which is outside of Paris. And actually, France is used as a filming location a lot more than as uh, an actual film location, but as a stand-in for other locales like in Moonraker, a lot of places in France are filmed but are supposed to be California. But that's, you know, not enough for a podcast episode, obviously. So then I turned to the original books by Ian Fleming. Here we have so much more. We have Bond, much like his creator Ian Fleming, spending so much more time in France both in Paris and traveling around the countryside. And Bond or Fleming had a lot to say about France and Paris. Like, how did he feel about Paris? Where did he stay? What did he eat? What did he do? I think we should start with the drinking. We are discussing James Bond, after all. 
In the short story, A View to a Kill, which has no similarity to the movie plot except that parts of both take place in Paris, Bond finds himself at Fouquet's on the Champs-Élysées, despite his disdain for the traffic on the avenue. Bond refers to Fouquet's as a café instead of a brasserie, perhaps because he's sitting outside at one of the, the sidewalk tables instead of inside. This feels like a really odd choice for Bond. Not very Bondian to be out in the sunlight in the middle of the day, right? But it does set him up for the next scene, so I think we have to roll with it. He is fairly grumpy about this choice, however, because in his opinion, quote, one cannot drink seriously in French cafes. Out of doors, on the pavement, is no place for vodka, whiskey, or gin. After describing in detail all of the French cafe drinks that fall short of his exacting requirements, he states that he's ordered an Americano. This is not a coffee, however. This is the, quote, least offensive of the musical comedy drinks available at a French cafe. It's not quite the same as a vodka martini, though. It consists of bitter Campari, Cinzano Vermouth, a large slice of lemon peel, and soda. If this sounds sort of familiar, it is very similar to a Negroni. The only difference there is that an Americano uses soda and a Negroni uses gin. And remember, if you're ordering an Americano for the soda, he always stipulated Perrier. For in his opinion, expensive soda water was the cheapest way to improve a poor drink. In a random side note, the very first neon sign in the world meant to advertise a product and not just a, a business like a cafe name, was Fortunzano Vermouth in Paris around 1913. But now that you've had your aperitif, where should you eat? Bond, of course, is a lover of fine food as well. In The View to a Kill, the short story, he also gives us a glimpse at his dining preferences. For lunch, despite his dislike for tourists, he preferred the Café de la Paix near the Opera Garnier, or the Rotonde or the Dôme on the left bank, these restaurants, of course, are famous for their connection with the, the lost generation writers like Hemingway. However, for dinner, he was a little more picky. None of the Michelin-starred restaurants that had the, quote, tarnish of the expense account and the dollar, such as Maxime's or Tour d'Argent, he preferred other more traditionally French, or at least less touristy restaurants, such as the Verfour, the Caneton, the Luca Carton, or the Cochon d'Or. Let's take a look at some of those. Le Grand Vefort in the Palais Royal is actually the OG grand restaurant in Paris. It opened before the French Revolution back in 1784. And if you're a Midnight in Paris fan, this is the restaurant where Gil and Inez run into her friends Paul and Carol for the first time while they were dining with her parents with that beautiful interior. The Verfour actually has recently reinvented itself from that high-end Michelin-starred restaurant into a much more accessibly priced brasserie. They did this as a result both of the pandemic, it seems, and in response to the, the difficulty of keeping up with the modern Parisian Michelin scene. Apparently, it's doing quite well and now is a little more affordable, though Bond would probably now stop going. The next one, the Eau Canaton, unfortunately doesn't seem to exist anymore and seems to have closed in sometime in the 1980s. It was a little bit tricky to find out a lot of info, but it did at one point have a Michelin star or possibly stars. And it also got caught up in the politics of the Nazi occupation in the 40s. 
It was founded in the early 20th century, and one description has it listed as fabulously expensive. I think we can see a trend here for James. The third restaurant was the Luca Carton. This one's still going. It's just a one star. It's lost some stars over the years. On the Place de la Madeleine, the original iteration of the restaurant started way back in 1860, and its prices are still pretty expensive. Maybe not fabulously expensive, but considerably more than the cafeteria at the Ikea on the opposite side of the Place de la Madeleine. So after you go to the church, you can make a choice. Spend a lot of money or grab some Swedish meatballs. And the last one, the fourth one that I mentioned, the Au Cochon d'Or, is now also extinct. It was founded in the 1930s and closed in the late 1990s. And don't confuse this, though, with the Au Pied de Cochon, or the Pig's Foot, uh, which is still going strong nearly all. This one, our Golden Pig, was a little bit out of the way, unlike the others. This one was up in the 19th in Leviette, so not quite as easy to access. In sum, it seems like the older the restaurant the more likely it is to have survived into the 21st century. What also confused me a little bit is that it's unclear if Bond is on an expense account, even though he disparages them. Did the Secret Service reimburse him for all these fabulously expensive meals? Or were the double simply paid commiserate to the risks that they undertook? Inquiring minds want to know. And speaking of Bond and the Secret Service, These are not low-profile restaurants that he's going to. He really is the least undercover spy ever. After eating very, very well, where did Bond lay down his head? Throughout the books, his preferences for train station hotels, believe it or not, he gives a full explanation in Goldfinger, actually, when he's selecting the Hotel de la Gare in Orléans while in pursuit of that man with the Midas touch. When in doubt, Bond always chose the station hotels. They were adequate, there was plenty of room to park the car, and it was better than even chances that the Buffet de la Gare would be excellent. And at the station, one could hear the heartbeat of the town. The night sounds of the trains were full of its tragedy and romance. I don't think Fleming always gets enough credit for his writing. In his Parisian adventure, A View to a Kill, Bond chooses Terminus Nord at the Gare du Nord, because he liked station hotels, and because this was the least pretentious and most anonymous of them. Then and now, the Gare du Nord is the top train station in Paris. It has been the busiest rail station, actually, in Europe for years running. Looking at the hotel now, the Terminus Nord has gone through several owners since Bond's time, with the current one being the German hipster boutique chain 25 Hours, While the location would still suit James, I think, just fine, I'm not sure he would be down with that new hipster decor. Perhaps he would choose a different station-adjacent hotel. But I love this idea of the jet-setting James Bond choosing such practical hotels. It contradicts a lot of his choices in the films, where he is mostly going for those generic five-star international hotels. It reminds me a lot, actually, of... Jason Bourne trying to find CIA agent Pamela Landy in Berlin in the Bourne Supremacy. He just grabs a guidebook and starts calling the big-name hotels like the Westin until he finds her. And in fact, Bond actually does the same thing in the Goldfinger book. He grabs a Michelin guide and looks up the best hotels in Orléans to surveil Goldfinger's movements. While, of course, he slept at the hotel at the train station. Did Bourne 
or the born writers to steal this from Bond? Or is this perhaps standard operating spy procedure? I would love to know. After a good night's sleep, what about Bond's actual work? What did Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang get up to as a double O in Paris? Well, I mean, spy stuff, actually. (laughs) One of the more well-described missions is in From Russia with Love, where he and Tatiana end up in Paris after their adventures in Turkey and Eastern Europe. In the movie, they end up in Venice, if you'll recall, but in the book, they take the Orient Express all the way to France, hopping off the train in Dijon to ditch some bad guys. After making sure that Tatiana and the Soviet decoder are safe in the embassy in Paris, Bond goes out to track down Rosa Klebb, she of the poison-tipped shoes. He finds her at the Ritz Hotel, and we follow him as he goes in the back entrance on the Rue Cambon, instead of in the front entrance on the Place Vendôme. He, of course, stops to grab a drink at the hotel bar in the Ritz first, which is still there on the left-hand side of the entrance. To the right, you'll actually find the Hemingway Bar, which, of course, wasn't there in Bond's time or Hemingway's time. And for more recent history, this particular entrance is actually the one that Princess Diana and Dodi Fayed used when they were trying to escape the paparazzi on that fateful night. So kind of an emotional spot for some people. After his shot of liquid courage, James then goes up to room 204. This is very specific and repeated for some reason. (laughs) And once he gets to room 204, he takes on a much more fierce version of Rosa Club than we see in the movie, actually. In this version, Tatiana, of course, doesn't come to save him. She's at the embassy. Here we have Renee Mathis, who works for the Duxiem Bureau, or the French version of the CIA, coming to James's rescue. However, Bond does get jabbed by the poison shoe in the original version. The book ends with him losing consciousness, and he seems doomed. But don't worry, though. Of course, he pulls through in the next novel, which, in the order of the books, is Dr. No. On other missions, in addition to those already mentioned, we have Bond taking on Smersh, which is basically the KGB, just outside of Paris in A View to a Kill, by impersonating an intelligence service motorcycle messenger. There is a very detailed description in Thunderball of Spectre's headquarters at 136 Bis Boulevard Hassemont in the 8th Arrondissement, which is just down the street from the Musée André Jacquemart, uh, which is a lovely museum if you get to go. In the movie, the headquarters are also in Paris, but they have been moved to a more cinematic location in the 16th, if you're thinking, wait, that's not where it was in the movie. When he's not dining out, resting his head, or otherwise enjoying his hotel room, or doing spy stuff in Paris, what does Bond do? Well, he's not taking in the Louvre. This is where things get a little more adult, so I'm just warning you here. In his teens, he went to the famous Harry's Bar and apparently lost his virginity, and this sets the tone for most of his Parisian leisure time. As an adult, to walk off his pricey dinners, he would walk over to the Place Pigalle to, quote, see what would happen to him. And then when, as usual, nothing did, he would walk home across Paris to the Garde Nord and go to bed. Even while sitting at Fouquet's, he fantasizes about picking up a well-compensated companion for the evening, possibly in the Bois de Boulogne, and taking her to dinner, perhaps at the, I might slaughter this, Armand and Vie, which was a restaurant but is now an events center at the edge of the Bois. He's not, he's definitely not taking in the traditional sights of Paris in his free time. 
And actually, it doesn't seem that Bond cared for Paris much in the post-war years. In fact, he claims to have cordially disliked Paris since the war. Quote, since 1945, he had not had a happy day in Paris. It was not that the town had sold its body. Many towns had done that. It was that its heart was gone. Pawned to the tourists, pawned to the Russians, the Romanians, and the Bulgars, pawned to the scum of the world who had gradually taken the town over. And of course, pawned to the Germans. You could see it in the people's eyes, sullen, envious, ashamed. This is, of course, a a fictional take of post-war Paris. But considering that the city is once again full of tourists, there are ongoing complaints of foreign investors taking over the city, and the very long shadow that the occupation still casts over not just Paris, but of France and French culture and identity, this rings true even now for me. When he's not in Paris and complaining about it, and he's out instead enjoying the French countryside, he seems to like France much more, except for Orléans, which he felt was a priest and myth-ridden town without charm or gaiety that was happy to trade in on its ties to Joan of Arc. He doesn't say anything about Rouen, but I wonder if he has that same impression. He even claims that the Loire River is his favorite river in the world. And it's in France, at a fictional resort town called Royal Les Eaux, that he meets the two big loves of his life within the books, Vesper Lind and Tracy Draco. Bond also enjoys trailing Goldfinger through eastern France, barring his stay in Orléans, of course, which sounds like it must have been an amazing drive. On this adventure, he meets yet another woman, naturally, Tilly Masterson, who was one of the many Bond girls who unfortunately doesn't make it to the end of the story, much like his loves, Tracy and Vesper. So for James, France and women and death are all intertwined. Though I suppose that we could say that about most locations for Bond. One of the fun things about seeing Paris through Bond's eyes from 60 or 70 years ago is that we pretty much still have the same complaints and problems about Paris. Are the before-mentioned tourists ruining the city, even though we are also tourists? Yes. Is the traffic on the Champs-Élysées a nightmare? Absolutely. Though that hopefully should be changing in the next few years. And are people still making bad life choices in Pigalle? Oui. Yes, they are. I think one of the reasons that Paris holds such a fascination for us is that she has this je ne sais quoi. This sense that perhaps James Bond or Jason Bourne or even Ethan Hunt is hidden in the shadow of that doorway on a cold, misty night. The city feels like it's holding on to secrets. And surely there must be spies out there among us trying to expose the secrets or keep them hidden. She's an enigmatic, mysterious, beautiful place to let our imaginations run wild. Is the dark, handsome stranger at the hotel bar, pensively drinking the martini, simply alone on business? Or is he something more altogether? If he says that he works for Universal Exports, be careful. Or not. If he looks like Sean Connery or Henry Cavill, that may be a fait accompli for me. I hope you enjoy this rather different look at the Paris of the past. If you want to grab a copy of the Bond books mentioned in this episode, please check out the link in the show notes for the PGB Boutique. 
To go deeper into the episode, read the blog, and explore more resources, please check out the website at parisgoneby.com. And if you loved what you heard today, please do subscribe or leave a comment. It really does help bring PGB to the masses. Thank you so much for listening and have a great rest of your day. Mr. Goldfinger. (laughs) Just kidding. I'll spare you. Here's the outro. Avianto. Avianto.